Welcome everyone to the Atlantic Council. My name is Francis Ricciardone. I'm the director of the Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East and vice president of the Atlantic Council. It's a special pleasure to have all of you with us today. And when I say all of you, I also mean those of you in Saudi Arabia who are watching via a live webcast that will also be available in recorded form um, after we're finished. Um, also, happy holidays to all of you in, in Saudi Arabia for the just concluded holidays. Uh, this is a particularly interesting uh, topic that brings us together today with particularly interesting panelists. I will mention only their names because we want to use every minute of time available. Uh, their bio information, uh, for those of you who don't know our panelists, is uh, before you on uh, sheets and will be on our website for those who are joining uh, via webcast. We have Stephanie House here, who is uh, a colleague here at the Hariri Center who actually helped precipitate, who brought together uh, each of us on the panel and each of us here today through her work with what is now the King Salman Center for Innovation in Government, as well as our center. Uh, Rajika Bandari, who is uh, also going to be speaking about the larger global context of uh, educational exchange and its impact. And Habibi, who heads the Center for Innovation in Government. And then we are really delighted to have with us by a video conference, Samar Al-Awami, who is a, a, a member of the King Salman Center and a, a product herself of international education. Uh, and finally, Ambassador Smith to give us some of the historical context and, and what it means in terms of um, inter, uh, international conversation and communication and, and how we came to where we are. And then I'll be delighted after each of the panelists speaks to um, try to uh, manage the questions and comments that we have from all of you in the room. And do we have a way of bringing in comments from Saudi Arabia? I don't think we do live. But, but after the fact, we can certainly respond to any comments and questions. Um, what precipitated this uh, was uh, the introduction that uh, Stephanie helped precipitate with the King Salman Center. And when I went to Saudi Arabia in May, my first visit to the kingdom in several years, um, I went for other purposes, and this was one among many stops that I had made. And this, with the other uh, Saudis I met, uh, really shook my own uh, preconceptions of where Saudi Arabia was and, and what was going on. And um, I had heard of a scholarship program that had brought many together, but I didn't know its dimensions. And what I found in Saudi Arabia is that which you don't see so much from the outside. Perhaps it's hiding in plain sight if you're inside the kingdom and you see it. But outside, people tend to think of the kingdom as conservative, closed. The conventional uh, understanding about the kingdom is that it's full of uh, tensions and problems and, um, and clinging desperately to the past. What I found instead, or perhaps in addition, there may well be elements of truth to all that, is a really motivated, fired up, young, mostly young people who had uh, substantial exposure to the rest of the world, particularly to Western Europe and the United States, and had come back to Saudi Arabia not merely to Saudi-eyes uh, corporations and businesses and government um, operations, but to, they were, came back motivated to drive it forward, to introduce change appropriate to their dreams and aspirations, their culture, their country, not to turn it into the United States or to Europe, but to bring it all together. 
um, innovation was the last word I expected to hear associated, quite honestly, with Saudi Arabia. And I found Saudis, not foreigners visiting Saudi Arabia, or not only so foreigners invited to visit, but Saudis who are innovating and with great passion. Um, and then I looked a little bit into where this had come from, and I thought it possible to draw a line to um, the very visionary program of King Abdullah in sending what has turned out to be many thousands of Saudis to the United States uh, and other countries to uh, study and, and to bring back fresh thinking, not just um, information and skills, but ways of thinking and, and doing things. That brought to mind something that, again, I think all of us in this room at least are concerned about, whether people from government or from the private sector or education, we all, or think tanks. We all want to have impact. We all want to have a positive influence on the way the world turns out. Um, I'm here because of the impact of international education on me. I was a Fulbright scholar, and I think the Fulbright program is one of the best things the United States has ever done to promote American interests and a joint American interests with our friends around the world in sending young Americans overseas to see how others are and think and to bring others to our country to see how we are and we think. So I'm a, a real believer. And to see that uh, Saudi Arabia has as a matter of state policy that sort of vision and intent uh, to educate its coming generations in massive numbers with uh, massive public resources, I found a pretty impressive thing. So the question that left in my mind is the Malcolm Gladwell uh, thesis. Uh, is Saudi Arabia reaching a tipping point, which it apparently intends, the kingdom intends as a matter of public policy, to reach? The, that, uh, I, I found the definition he gave of it, that uh, magic moment when an idea, trend, or a social behavior crosses a threshold it, when it tips and spreads like wildfire. Just as a single sick person can start an epidemic of the flu, so too can a small and precisely targeted push cause a fashion trend, the popularity of a new product, or a drop in the crime rate. Positive things. This seems to be the intent of the King Abdullah Scholarship Program and many others. So that's the, the case study we're looking at here today. Thank you all for joining with that. Perhaps if Stephanie, you'll give us the dimensions of the, the program so we can use that as a basis. Sure. I'd be delighted to. Let me thank you all again for being here today. And um, if any of you are interested in the particulars of the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, I urge you to pick up a copy of the case study I co-authored with some colleagues at the King Salman Center for Innovative Government, um, if you're interested to read more. Um, but today, I'm really excited to go over some basic details about a program I've been studying for several years now, the King Abdullah Scholarship Program. I started studying it in part because it impacted my own life. Uh, without it, I might not have had the chance to meet a number of Saudi students and befriend them and learn from them. So it has a personal connection to me as well. So, um, and one thing I should mention too is that now that King Salman has ascended the throne, there have been some changes announced to the program. So everything I'm going to talk about today is referring to uh, the program as it was under King Abdullah. But we're monitoring the changes and we're going to put out a revised study on what those changes entail in the coming months. So stay tuned for that if you're interested. Let's go begin at the beginning, though. Uh, how did this program start? I understand Ambassador Smith is going to give us a, an anecdote on this, too. But the, the bare bones are that uh, King Abdullah met with President Bush in 2005 at Bush's ranch in Crawford. 
and made the case to him that we needed to have more Saudis coming to the United States to study. At that time, there were only about 5,000 Saudis in the United States uh, studying. And um, this was a particularly difficult moment for U.S.-Saudi relations at the popular level, at least. 9-11 had only happened a few years ago, and there were really negative attitudes um, towards Saudis in the United States. And so King Abdullah believed that one way to address this issue would be to send more Saudis outside of the country, let people get to know them, let them get to know others, and let them get a world-class education and come back with skills and ideas that they could use to better their country. So Bush agreed, and this program starts soon after these discussions. At least it begins to ramp up. It takes it a couple of years to really get going. Um, and when we say a scholarship program, I want to be clear that this is a really comprehensive program. It's not just tuition. It is tuition for all the um, degree programs. And, but it's also uh, ESL for two years. Uh, it gives students a living stipend, so sort of a salary every month. It gives them health care, plane tickets home. So it, it really enables students that um, wouldn't be able to come otherwise, whose families couldn't afford to send them. It gives them a shot to come too. It's not just for elites. And I think sometimes there's a perception that the Saudis that come here are, you know, super wealthy and have these fancy cars. And that is, there are some, but there are many that come and they send part of their stipend back home to their families. So something interesting. And many that come that have never been outside of Saudi Arabia even. So something important to know. Really important it's merit-based. Yes. It's not lost. It's merit-based. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. So if you look at this image, you'll see the exponential growth in terms of numbers of Saudi students in the United States, um, particularly if you look from the period of 2005 to about present day, about 10 years in, you go from about 25,000 Saudis worldwide studying abroad to over 200,000 worldwide. And then about half of those are in the US. So here we've got over 100,000, about 110,000 in the US right now. Whereas in 2005, we had less than 5,000. So I think this really speaks to the popularity of the program, for one thing, just how many people want to take this opportunity, but also to the scaling, to the fact that the Saudi government was able to, in really less than 10 years, suddenly support all of these students in a way that had never been done before um, by them. So pretty remarkable in terms of the growth. Um, so these are undergraduates? Well, that's, that's actually, I was going to just say that the only caveat for this data is that I am using the largest possible number here. I'm counting everybody that is enrolled in a degree program, in ESL, dependents, and male guardians. Now, a lot of them are studying, too, so that's why I count them, because they're all here. They're all, you know, being impacted by this program. But some people will use numbers that are slightly lower, like you might see, like, 80,000 in the U.S. right now, because they're counting just students in degree programs. Und but undergraduate degree programs, not doctoral programs necessarily, this or all of the above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But above secondary level, no, no secondary school. Uh, well, they do. No, they are allowed to do secondary. Is that what you're asking? If they're allowed to do master's degrees or doctoral These are to American colleges and universities, undergraduates and graduates, correct? Right, and graduate. And medical school, mm -hmm. yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. It, it, up until a few months ago, right. it was an automatic rollover. So if you got accepted into a graduate program, yeah. It automatically extended the scholarship program. So as of about Correct. two years ago, um, about half of the Saudis who were here were actually in graduate programs yeah. because they'd been here through that four- to five-year cycle, and now we're in graduate programs. Exactly. Yeah, many students, that's why they stay here so long, because they're able to 
upgrade and, and do a, an additional degree program after they complete their first. Okay, so Rajika is going to go into this further. I don't want to steal her thunder, but I do want to give you some context because you might say, okay, 100,000 students in the U.S. sounds like a lot, but how does that compare to other, you know, foreign student populations here? So in 2014, only three countries sent more students to the United States than Saudi Arabia, China, India, and South Korea. And bear in mind that China has a population of 1.3 billion, India has a population of 1.2 billion, and Saudi Arabia only has about 28 million people, and 8 million of those are expats. So pretty remarkable that Saudi is competing at this level with these other larger countries. Now I just want to go into some aspects that I think are really key um, of this program. About 30% of participants are women. And to me, this has always said more about uh, the families in Saudi Arabia than it's said about the women themselves necessarily, because in order to come on this program, their families have to consent. So this sort of um, goes, in, goes against some of the stereotypes we hear about super conservative, super controlling families not wanting their women or their daughters or their sisters to have opportunities um, in Saudi Arabia. I mean, certainly there are those families there, here, everywhere, but the fact that tens of thousands of women's families are not only letting them come, but encouraging them to come, to me, is indicative of some real change that's happening there that we should watch, you know, to see how it plays out in the next 10 to 20 years in terms of impacts on social dynamics, family dynamics, policies, work, you know, all these kinds of issues. This is another really fun statistic. Out of all Saudis currently pursuing higher education, 11% are being educated abroad. So this goes back to what Ambassador Ricciardoni was saying about a tipping point and a critical mass. You know, you get over 10% of everybody in that country that's going to college or going to grad school being educated abroad. And to me, it seems like there's going to be some kind of impacts, you know, maybe some good, maybe some bad, but, you know, influences on colleagues and family members and friends, just from the sheer number of people being impacted by this experience. This is also a really important aspect of the program, that it is not a typical American-style um, semester abroad experience where, the, you know, Americans are, are put in a dorm with other Americans. Most Saudis that come on this program are living in the host country for at least five years because they're going to do ESL for a year, maybe two, and um, then they're going to go on to do a degree program. So they're really immersed in the country for a number of years, and five years or six years, that's enough time where you're going to have to learn the language. You're going to have to figure out how to do things like rent an apartment, you know, manage your finances, probably get an internship, probably make some friends. You know. You're not going to just be um, having a limited, brief experience in a foreign country. So again, something really special and different about this program. The U.S. is the most popular destination. Um, over half of all the participants choose to come here, but the program operates in 23 countries. So Saudis are also going to places like China and the United Kingdom and Australia and Korea. So I, I think that's also something to note, that there are going to be some interesting connections made um, and perhaps partnerships with uh, people in these other countries as well, not just Western countries. And some interesting linguistic exposure, too, from all these interactions. As you can imagine, because it's such a comprehensive program, it's very costly. Right now, the scholarship program is costing the Saudi government about $6 billion a year, which is 3% of the entire government budget. So this is a significant policy investment. And again, 10 years ago, the money was not being spent that way. So this is a really deliberate policy choice. Um, and by the way, most of this money goes back to the host countries, because in 2013, 2014, for example, Saudi students contributed $3.2 to the U.S. economy. 
So it's a boon for the host countries as well in terms of their higher education programs. The last thing I want to touch on is my favorite aspect of this program, which is its dual nature. And by that I mean it doesn't just send Saudis out into the world um, to get educated, to meet others, to be changed. It really has the potential to change and impact people in the host countries. I'm an example of this. You know, I, how would I have met Saudis? How would I have had Saudi roommates? You know, um, how would I have got so interested in Saudi Arabia if not for you know meeting dozens of them at college? You know, and uh, those kinds of interactions they really allow people to have conversations that get beyond stereotypes that allow real friendships and partnerships to form. And I think in the long term, if enough of those positive interactions happen, it's really transformative. And of course, I, I'm not saying that every single interaction will be positive. I'm not saying every time you know, an American meets a Saudi, they're going to suddenly think, oh, well, you know, Saudis are great, or Saudi Arabia has no problems. But they might start to have a more nuanced view, or they might be able to ask some questions that otherwise they wouldn't get to ask. So I really think the program educates the world about Saudis, too. Um, so I, uh, I'm happy to discuss any of these elements further in the Q&A, but I'm really eager to hear what our other panelists have to say, too. So let me turn it over to Rajika now. Thanks for that overview, Stephanie. Yeah. Rajika. Sure. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And my thanks to Stephanie and others at the Atlantic Council for inviting me. Um, I'm going to be presenting a slightly wider picture going beyond the Saudi program, because I think we're going to get more information about the program from my other colleagues on the panel. So I thought what I would really talk about is situating this as one program among others that are taking place globally and share with you a little bit about what we know about those programs and what we don't know about them. Um, a little bit about me, I oversee research and evaluation activities at the Institute of International um, Education, IIE, headquartered in New York. And um, we also have a research center there called the IIE Center for Academic Mobility Research and Impact. I, uh, so just a word about IIE, um, for those of you who might not know about our organization, um, our mission is to advance um, international education and to increase access to education worldwide. And we do this through a fairly large uh, global presence around the world. Um, where, we, um, where we really focus on uh, exchange programs, on training programs. Um, the program that we are most known for is the Fulbright program um, that we run on behalf of uh, the US government. But many other programs uh, like that that really focus on educational exchange. And a lot of our research now is centered on looking at the impact that such programs um, can have. So stepping back a little bit, um, uh, we know that the movement of students globally is expanding rapidly. Currently, the estimate is uh, that there are about um, 4.3 million students that are globally mobile. And according to some estimates, this number is uh, projected to increase to 8 million by 2025. Now, a lot of this mobility is what we might 
called self-motivated mobility where students are choosing to move overseas. But a lot of the mobility is that that's supported by the sorts of scholarship programs that we are talking about today, including the Saudi program. And so in the larger context of mobility, these programs are not new. They've existed for a very long time. But I think what is new and what we're seeing with the Saudi program, what we're seeing with the Brazil program, is that the scale of these programs is almost unprecedented, the scale and the ambition of such programs. So let's take a quick look at what the global um, scope of these programs uh, looks like and what are we really talking about. So according to some estimates, there are actually about 183 national government scholarship programs around the world. And almost 50% of the world's countries offer at least one such program. Again, the scale might differ dramatically where they might range from sending out about 100,000 students each year to some that send out only 50 students each year. But some of the other countries where we see um, these types of programs are Kuwait, Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela, Kazakhstan, Russia, and of course Saudi Arabia. And then the other large program that I will get to a little bit later on is the Brazil program. Most of the programs can be broken down into a few different types. Um, one, one group of programs focuses on the development of basic skills. Another one focuses on advancing knowledge in developing nations. Another type includes um, a focus on um, knowledge in developed nations. And the fourth type is the promotion of short-term study abroad. And what we find is that most of the 183 programs tend to fall into the two types, types two and three, that are really geared towards advancing knowledge either within developed nations or developing nations. Most of these programs also have a requirement that students who go back have, a, have some sort of service contract with, um, with their government. And so that's where we see most of the programs clustered. Most of the programs are focused at the graduate level. Um, the idea being that that's the level at which you're going to see a multiplier effect where students who are graduate students are going to go back to their home countries and really help build knowledge economies, help build their academic and research sectors. That being said, some of the largest programs today, and again, the Saudi one, um, as well as the Brazil one, have, um, have also involved large numbers of undergraduate, um, undergraduate students. And a final feature of many of the programs is um, that they promote a form of what might be considered vertical mobility. And what I mean by this is, very often it's about going from developed nations, uh, excuse me, developing nations to developed nations, going to highly ranked elite institutions, so sort of upward mobility in terms of the education uh, that's being sought. So looking at how some of these programs play out in the numbers that we see, and the data you're about to see comes from our Open Doors project, um, as Stephanie mentioned, the, the, the top three countries of origin of foreign students in the US are China, India, and South Korea, but Saudi Arabia is now the number four country of origin. And this is a relatively recent development. This was not the case some years ago. Um, some years ago, Saudi Arabia was not even among the top 25 sending countries. So we've really seen a very, very dramatic shift. 
So if we go beyond those three countries, or even four countries, if we include Saudi Arabia, where is the largest growth coming from? And you see here that this picture looks very different. Other than China, there really, you don't see much around Asia. There, there, there isn't much happening in Asia here because most of the story is about countries that are running scholarship programs. So you have Brazil, you have Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, of course, and the numbers show the amount of growth that we've seen over a one-year period in the number of students coming here. Um, the growth for Kuwait, for example, is dramatic, 43%. So I want to take a minute to talk about um, the Brazil Scientific Mobility Program, because this is the other really large-scale national government scholarship program that you hear about these days when people talk about these sorts of governmental initiatives. And um, IIE, my organization, is intimately involved in this program because we um, run this program for the Brazilian government. We run the program in the US. But students on this program can also choose to go to other countries, but uh, the majority tend to come to the US. Um, so again, this graph really shows you the growth of uh, the program over time. What it doesn't show you is that there are other aspects of the program that are now unfolding, reaching different types, involving different types of students at different levels of study. But again, for the Brazilian government, like it did for the Saudi government, it represents a huge investment and um, a huge undertaking. What are some motivations for governments to launch these types of programs? I think we can, we can probably distill them into about five motivations. Um, the overarching one is promoting national development. If you look at the countries that have launched these programs, um, many of these are countries that have seen rapid um, uh, economic development over the past several years and are really looking at these programs as a way to continue that development and, and build a workforce that's going to further that development and situate that country um, uh, uh, as being globally competitive. Another factor is increasing human capacity in key areas. We see this in the case of the Brazil program, where there's a very strong focus on science and technology. And this motivation really has to do with the fact that countries have identified certain fields or sectors that their own nations or their workforce might be weak in and have determined that a program um, such as a scholarship program might really help build capacity in that area. A third area is uh, reforming or improving organizations, which um, could include the entire higher education sector. Um, the DICTI program in Indonesia is a good example of this, which focuses on teachers. So it's really about building an entire sector like higher education or even the governmental sector. A fourth area is improving um, linkages, and this can be broadly defined. This could in, in include um, uh, the notion of mutual exchanges. That's the guiding principle for programs like Fulbright, um, some of the European mobility programs, and others. And then a fifth area, though, um, it has to be said that this is possibly the least frequent motivation. Um, the, uh, the, the idea is to use scholarship programs as an instrument or a vehicle to address um, inequities within a certain society and to provide opportunities um, for more disadvantaged groups. That being said, it's very interesting to see the large proportion of uh, women 
participating in the Saudi program, and it will remain to be seen um, what impact programs like that will have on communities or groups who might not have otherwise participated. So really look, um, quickly looking ahead, what do we see as some of the challenges and opportunities um, in the field? One area is engaging alumni. Um, across most of these programs, one common factor that can be observed is that very little has been done um, to really have um, a, a clear approach or a strategy to engaging the hundreds and thousands of students who are going to have participated in this program. So there's no um, clear strategy around that. Um, there's very little re-entry support of these students when they go back, when they're trying to um, establish themselves in the economies of their home countries um, when they go back. A third area is what implication these programs have for disadvantaged and marginalized groups. And to go back to the point I made earlier, the reverse of the fact that some of them do address social inequities is the fact that many of them can in fact create further divides um, back in the home country between students who have easier access to the structures that might enable them to participate in these programs versus those that don't. And then um, uh, a topic that I want to spend um, a little bit more time on and wrap up with, the issue of the impact of such programs. And this is really an area that is very, very understudied in our, um, in our field. And it's uh, very problematic that we don't have enough evidence around it. I think for all of us who work in the field, we understand and acknowledge that programs like this can be transformational, they have lasting impact. Um, Ambassador, you talked about the, the impact of your Fulbright experience, and, and we know that those impacts exist, but those impacts have not really been measured and we don't have enough evidence, especially when we're looking at the sorts of investments that we're hearing about, the $6 million. That's a significant investment. Well, today, we don't have any clear data on whether that investment is paying off, and more importantly, how exactly is it paying off? So we don't know, for example, what are the impacts on the individuals who participated? What are the impacts on the institutions that either sent them overseas or hosted them, the impact on their communities, and finally, impact at a societal level. And that's a question to which we don't have an answer. In closing, I want to present a quick example to you of how we can arrive at those answers. Um, this information comes from a 10-year longitudinal alumni study that we're carrying out of a program called the Ford Foundation International Fellowships Program. It is not a national government scholarship program, but it's a very large program in terms of its scale and scope. So therefore, there are some takeaways from this on how we might study these other types of scholarship programs. Um, by the time the program ended, um, it had served over 4,000 individuals across 22 countries. Um, and for, it ran for over 10 years. And our center is now engaged in a 10-year study that goes till 2022 to track these 4,000 individuals across the world to ask that question of so what? Why was this experience important and how did it pay off? How are we doing this? 
we have a quantitative approach in which we are serving all the alumni across the world. But we also are serving the community they work in, the organizations they work in, the ministries they currently um, serve in, etc. So the other spheres of influence and impact. We also have a qualitative approach where we are going to be working with local researchers in about 12 countries to really go into the field and find out what happened to these grantees or the alumni and what sorts of impacts um, did they have. And all of that really helps us look at this notion of um, longitudinal impact. So I'll close with that and uh, turn it over to Thank you, Ambassador Richie. Smith. There'll certainly be a lot to follow up there. Before Anne Habibi introduces herself and uh, Samar Alwami, I, I would point something out. At the Atlantic Council, we have 10 centers, several of us do regional work. One of the things uh, that we focus on very deliberately is not to talk about the regions we're interested in without speaking with the regions we're interested in. We want people in our panels, in our everyday research work, who are from the region of the region, um, uh, visiting us either physically present or through telepresence. And uh, Anne is herself an American, is working in Saudi Arabia and is back, and will introduce uh, Samar, who will be with us uh, through video presence. Anne Habibi. Uh, thank you very, very much for this incredible privilege of being at this table and in this room and uh, at the Atlantic Council. I'd like to derail you just for a minute and give you a 10,000 feet perspective on Saudi Arabia through the eyes of a very, very young organization called the King Salman Center for Innovative Government. And it's young both in the fact that it is less than two years old and its team are these young Saudis that we have been speaking about. So I'd like to do that for about five minutes and then introduce one of our rock stars, Summer, who will be beamed in um, as an exemplar of everything that we're talking about. So I think one of the challenges for Saudi Arabia is that many people's perspective is what I would call a rear view perspective. We're looking out of the side mirror, looking back and not forward. And this case is one that asks you to question when you read the case, could diplomacy and the economy of Saudi Arabia and the region be totally different in 10, 15 years when all of these young people who speak Japanese and Korean and Chinese and you know, Australian English and American English and British English, rise through the ranks of society, of government, and the economy. Are we looking at a whole new playing field? So we ask these kinds of questions. So let me uh, first, again, thank uh, Ambassador Riccardioni, uh, Stephanie, for uh, dignifying a very young think tank with the ability to be here with you. Um, for the panelists and uh, for, I'd like to just mention two ambassadors, Ambassador Smith, who has been in Saudi Arabia a number of years and we've had an opportunity to do many things the last few years. I call him the education and entrepreneurship ambassador. And then Ambassador Cutler, who I first met when I was a teenager and I would follow my father to Saudi Arabia four or five times a year. He was a single parent, so everywhere he went, I went. And we went only to Saudi Arabia, essentially. And I got to sit at these incredible dinners with Ambassador Cutler and his wife as a teenager and hear the future of this country being imagined. And so it is a, it's a great honor to, to see you. So I've been in Saudi Arabia on and off for about 30 years. I've worked inside government, inside of an agency where it was me and 350 men. 
I've had the opportunity to see the best of what this country has to offer, and that's part of my motivation for uh, being a part of this think tank. Uh, we are the first private, nonprofit, Saudi-based think tank focused on improving government performance. We do not look at foreign policy. We do not look at energy per se. I mean, certainly solar and all those things are interested in, but those are realms covered by others. But there is no think tank actually asking the questions of economic and social progress and transformation. We find ourselves sort of marooned on an island somewhat by ourselves, so we're looking for as many thought partners as possible. And when the Atlantic Council sort of appeared on our doorstep, we couldn't have been happier to have somebody to think with and uh, play out many ideas with. We were previously an even smaller entity, if it's possible to be smaller, called the Prince Salman Center for Local Governance. Prince Salman was the governor of Riyadh for decades, holding down the capital of Saudi Arabia and transforming it from a very small town to a global city. He is now the king. And uh, so now we're the King Salman Center with a different name, Center for Innovative Government. We're not only the first of our own kind, we are based at the first private university in Saudi Arabia, uh, which is called Prince Sultan University. So there are so many newnesses in us. You know, we are one of a kind within an entity that's one of a kind. So we uh, have a lot that we're uh, experimenting with. So now, uh, this center, I wanted to just tell you a little bit about what we do and how we think and hope that, in fact, you will all engage us in supporting you in, in one way or another. So when you ask the question of how to improve Saudi government performance, you have to have a bit of an agenda to, to get there. So we spent a year and a half doing what we call a thinking process. And we thought with anybody who would talk to us around the world and in Saudi Arabia, and we asked two basic questions. If you are a think tank starting today, as opposed to the Atlantic Council that has a long and rich history, but Today, you, you open your doors as a think tank looking at social and economic transformation in the 21st century. What would you do? How would you do it? And it, specifically, if you're in Saudi Arabia, what would you do and how would you do it? And we had to answer these vital questions. And uh, I want to tell you where we think the space of real transformation is, a couple of things we do, and, and what we're finding. The first is, and this is true of any country, um, we focus on the zone of what we define, is, define as effective government strategy, and that means you can't just look at local government without looking at national government, nor can you look at local government and national government without looking at the economy. And a lot of pieces of that puzzle are, are looked at, but not in tandem, not in coordination. We look at the intersection of local government, national government, and the economy. And if you play there, you can win. There's a lot of upside to that. Um, in fact, in, the, in Saudi Arabia, but many places, those dots are very unconnected and sometimes at odds with each other. Our goal is to bring those spheres together and connect them. The other, and here I uh, must give complete credit to Les Janko, who is in the room. Uh, so once you agree with that, then you ask yourself, well, how do you mobilize against that opportunity? And he nailed it for us in a few syllables. And uh, we have this everywhere on our documents. He's right here. And he said, it's about transforming knowledge into performance. Saudi Arabia has no short of, of knowledge. It probably has overinvested in research. And you wouldn't know that until you see all the consulting firms running around. And it's their hottest, most lucrative market. There is more research than you can imagine. But no one has access to it. No one is able to take the ball down the field. 
So the consultant uh, leaves with an impenetrable document that's this high. No one can internalize that. And then it's very difficult to act against it. That's where we come in. We're not there to be uh, McKinsey. We're there to follow McKinsey. We're not there to be a number of other very specialized think tanks, but to draw on the ideas of the Hariri Center and others and say, well, what could we do with that tomorrow? And that's the space we very much occupy. We do that uh, through our own research. We try to concentrate and leverage the data of our own and others. There's no data center. There's no information center. It's, it's a kind of black hole of information. We try to fill as much as we can. And uh, a convener for creative and long-term thinking. So we, we are not at all invested in our own ideas per se, although we have a lot. Um, if we find other great ideas, we'd love to give attribution and we'd love to build on that. Um, I think we're an action tank with the mission to put ideas on the table. So a couple of things we're doing and finding. Our website is being retooled because we're no longer the Prince Salman Center, we're the King Salman Center, and that comes with just kind of a higher level of gravitas that we need to embed in that. So only really two years old, but really one year of operations. We're about 15 people. Stephanie is one summer, you'll meet another. And we're now in very high gear. So I'd like to tell you a few things we've done that you may find useful. And when the website is up and running again, we'll, we'll send you the website. The first is there is no answer to a very, very fundamental question. What is the Saudi government? There aren't books and org charts. I mean, it's really, <laughs> that too is somewhat unknown. So Summer is uh, in charge of three projects. But the first was we decide to map government. So from 1925 to the current, and when you do it, it's an interactive map. It's like a road. You go down the road, 1925, 1949. You see these massive ebbs and flows of government. And we've mapped the entire evolution of the Saudi government that you will all be able to see. And that's one of Summer's projects. One of the key findings you have when you look at the midpoint, there are 227 governmental agencies now. In 1980, half of those didn't exist. It's a dramatic sense of progress and development. That is uh, innovation happening at such supersonic speed, it's just taking a while for all of this to, to get um, kind of roots. But half of the government activity and entities didn't exist simply in 1980. That's, that's huge. We've mapped the nonprofit space. We can tell you where they are and what, where the missing holes are. We're mapping law and policy. So we believe in mapping. Uh, second is the case studies. We believe it's groundbreaking to actually study where success occurs and how it occurs. There are books. We could fill this room of what's not working in Saudi Arabia or elsewhere. And we are just one little piece of paper in this massive arena saying what is working. And you can build so much upscaling if you can find the domestic elements of what's working. One is the King Abdullah Scholarship, which I believe will change 10 years from now the diplomatic and economic cards of Saudi Arabia and the region. And I think we should play to that future. Um, we have about 12 cases so far. One is on the Noor system by the Ministry of Education. It's the largest Middle East uh, electronic education management system. It connects 33,000 public schools, the parents, students, teachers, massive in its transformative ability. Uh, we've looked at a lot of others, even down to local governance in Riyadh. We have a case on the instant building permit. Uh, when, they, when the Saudi Arabian government decides to do, it will act at such a level of will 
and speed hardly ever seen in any other country of the world. We're trying to look at when it does that, and it's not just money. You can't just buy your way to speed. There are many other factors. We look at what those factors are. There's the Riyadh metro system. Uh, we're going in Riyadh from a, a, a capital city, a huge city, uh, we're 2% ridership of public transport to building the largest public transport system currently being constructed in the world. It will revolutionize the economy and the energy dynamics of the capital city. These are huge things. Uh, we have whole idea briefs. These are short, sharp, actionable, and fact-driven articles we write. Uh, we have something called the Citizen Engagement Lab, where we mine social media. We've created a whole research tool around what do Saudis think. We have a great piece on when they tweet about corruption, what provokes them to tweet about it, and what do they say about it. So we're also looking at the digital realm. And in Saudi Arabia, if you're not keyed into the digital realm, you have missed the realm, because it, the digital realm is much more vibrant and alive than the physical realm. Uh, we have in-depth research and, and so forth. So the bottom line is we know Saudi Arabia is the economic and political engine of the region. Is it and can it be innovative? So we decide to put it in our name, um, not make it the mission statement, make it the name. It is an aspiration. I think it's a statement of fact. I think there are some really innovative things, and it's a statement of intention. And so this very small think tank is trying to play big while being small in this. I think the, the one message I'd like to leave you with before introducing Summer is we would like our little center based in Riyadh to be your home. It can be very hard getting into Saudi Arabia, but we seem to have cracked that. We can help with visas, meetings, networks, your thought partner. Our team, as you will meet with Summer, will give you a different perspective than um, the received common understanding. I believe that perspective is one to uh, overinvest in, in terms of uh, time and attention. So again, I, I thank you very much. Um, Summer, who I've already introduced some of her work, uh, is a sort of the ultimate incarnation of why you would have the King Abdullah scholarship. She came here, gave it her all, uh, is a brilliant, young, courageous thinker. And uh, she works at our center in research, and we had her stationed this past year at Aramco for the whole year doing joint research between us and Aramco. And this very young woman has bridged the government of Saudi Arabia and then you know, the largest energy company in the world. And you'll see, she's very young and incredibly impressive. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Summer, you are the incarnation and demonstration of the impact of uh, <laughs> educational and cultural exchange, not to put too much pressure on you, but we look forward to hearing from you how uh, your educational experience affected your ambitions and uh, your work now and where you're going and what you want for yourself and your country. Please speak. Thank you, Ambassador, and thank you, Anne, for the introduction. And I would like to thank the Asante Council for hosting this event, as well as the panelists and the convenes for taking time to be here. Um, I want to speak specifically about the impact of the scholarship system on my generation. Um, I am a product of the scholarship, and I, I was part of it starting in 2010. 2014, I graduated from American University with a Bachelor's of International Studies. Um, and from a general perspective, I think the scholarship system is transforming Saudi Arabia. Um, it's bringing back a new generation, a generation that has 
specific characteristics that are very essential for the implement of Saudi Arabia's workforce, as well as society's ideologies that will help Saudi move towards a knowledge society, which is the goal of the country. Um, to be specific about the impacts, I think the most important is the cultural exposure that students receive. Um, they meet people from different countries, different religions, different backgrounds, and it helps them diversify their ideas about the world. They look at it from a different lens rather than being at home looking at what's available on the internet or what's available on TV. They actually live that experience and it teaches them something that's very important, which is tolerance. And it is something very essential in the city of Saudi Arabia because historically Saudi Arabia is very much built in tribes. There is that idea of tribalism. There are some sorts of religious discrimination here and there. And I think that idea of having a generation coming back with the idea of tolerance, being tolerant and understanding and accepting of other religions and other perspectives is very important for the country's uh, progress. And of course, there is an external um, impact, which is changing the image of Saudi Arabia around the world. Um, I think you all agree that starting 2005 until today, the image of Saudi Arabia completely shifted. And because you're basically sending ambassadors around the world that teach people what Saudi Arabia really is, rather than what they see um, through media and the internet. Um, the second type of exposure is educational exposure, because basically you're teaching people all the languages around the world. Wherever you send them, they'll be learning the language. And most importantly, they all, they're all learning English, which is the most common language. Um, in Saudi Arabia, the public uh, system starts teaching English on sixth grade, which is you need stronger um, than that. And that's why we have people coming back with having full schools of English. That is very important to improve the workforce in general. The other thing is that they are learning in a completely different methodology that we were used to learning skills such as problem solving and analytical thinking. These are very important um, for students uh, before entering the workforce. And through the public education system in Saudi Arabia, these skills are not always there. Um, and I think the most important out of this is that come back to Saudi Arabia and they bring these best practices to the education system. The past five years, Saudi public, system, public education system transformed completely because they realize that when we're sending our students abroad, they are facing difficulties when they first enter college because our system is not preparing them fully to enter that system, which led the education, the Minister of Education, as well as all the facilities to say, we need to talk now and look back and basically transform our system uh, to uh, make it on a higher, a higher scale. And something else that personally, um, I'm, it's played well my, for my end, is that we're studying majors that are not available in our country. I studied international relations. If I stayed back in Saudi Arabia, I wouldn't have the chance to study that. And that also applies for women, for example, who want to study chemical engineering or petroleum engineering. It's not available for them in Saudi Arabia and many other majors. And that plays for um, the idea that we, Saudi Arabia wants to, trans it wants to diversify its economy. It does want to move away from oil. And when you have a generation coming back, studying different majors, talking about social sciences, economics, engineering, as well as the arts. That's something very, very important if you want to diversify your economy. And um, speaking about employment exposure, um, as I said, they do receive an education that prepares them for employment and they have the skills to enter the workforce. And what's also essential that they have the chance to practice it through internships that are available for them abroad. I think even specifically speaking about the U.S., there is that culture that students have to intern 
uh, during their undergraduate career and have unpaid internships. The culture in Saudi Arabia that not a lot of people realize the importance of um, interning in companies or organizations or even in governments. Um, and usually it is paid internships. They, they're not that incentive that I want to intern so I can learn professionalism, so I can learn the structure of the workforce. And therefore, when I'm actually employed, I already have a clear background of what I'm going into. So I think the availability of internships for students, for them, they can, so they can practice what they learn in school, is something very essential for Saudi Arabia. When you have this new generation coming back and already skilled and already they know they're going in, it's very um, important to um, improve the workforce of Saudi. And therefore, all this cultural, educational, and employment exposure, when they bring back this knowledge and experience they receive, it's important that they're going to recreate it in Saudi Arabia. They're going to recreate it either in existing organizations that they're going to be employed in, they're going to change the environment, and they're going to introduce new practices, new ideas, or you're actually going to create their own organizations and take this to entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship in Saudi Arabia is not as active as it is in the States because of a cultural factor, which is that Saudis are risk-averse. It's part of the culture. And I think this new generation that's coming back is definitely not that. Most of the big entrepreneurs in Saudi Arabia are people uh, are students who studied abroad. They learned all these new practices and they learned these new ideas and innovative ideas that they want to bring back to Saudi because they actually are exposed to that global market and they really want Saudi Arabia to transform to that competitive level. So what they do is come back and they transfer it. They transform the existing organization as well as creating ones that are missing to fill certain gaps that they find. And I think to conclude with with kind of um, the when um, students come back to uh, Saudi Arabia, they do have certain expectations. They have certain expectations for employment. They have certain expectations from the society. And sometimes they uh, they do get disappointed, what, which I think is not that bad of an effect because actually it did put pressure on Saudi Arabia, on the government, on the people to change and become better hosts for these young generations. Almost, um, I'm not sure of the exact statistic, but almost 60% of Saudi Arabia's population is under the age of 21, um, which I think is something huge. You need to satisfy this portion of the society. That's therefore this this um, reaction and this, um, I would say, reverse cultural shock is actually something very beneficial to Saudi Arabia than than uh, negative on it because it is transforming the government. It is transforming the people, it is transforming generations to become more hospitable to these new ideas, this innovation that is very much required um, in the country at this, um, at this time. Um, I don't want to talk uh, more and leave it to the question, uh, the question set, so I think uh, I'm done. <laughs> Summer, thank you very much. You're very articulate, and I'm sure we all will have many questions we want to ask you. Um, Jim Smith is a very special ambassador, not only served as an ambassador, but was in the military before that. There are several of us who have had the privilege of serving. Walt Cutler has uh, already been identified. Dick Morningstar is here. Richard LeBaron. I think, I think each of us, I, I know each of us, having spoken about this, find that this, what some call soft power, a term I hate, um, is one of the most effective uh, tools of American diplomacy, and I hate to even call it a tool. It is just something that brings people together and it's so effective. Um, uh, Jim, if you'd like to speak about the context of this program as you were there in its early days, the impact you saw it having 
on the transformation of Saudi Arabia and, and its impact on the relationship with the United States and American interests, frankly, as well as Saudi sure. interests. Um, well, first of all, it's great to be back with the Atlantic Council. I'm a great admirer of what you do here. And, 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 and being here next to Anne, all the wonderful things she's done to support entrepreneurs, not just in Saudi Arabia, but the, in the region, is, uh, is she's done a magnificent job. I would argue that our support of the King Abdullah Scholarship Program and education in general is a confluence of good policy, shared interests, uh, an incredible group of people working toward a common purpose, although not always in lockstep together, and a little luck. And I say that because if you look at Stephanie's slide, it looks like a stair-step, well-thought strategy to increase the number of students every year. And in 2009, when I got there, that was not the case. And in fact, we sort of looked at the King Abdullah Scholarship Program as stable. We were there, we were getting students back here, uh, uh, and the focus was not there. Now, I'd say it's a confluence of a good policy because Secretary Clinton had given me the challenge of trying to rebuild a relationship that had been stressed by the 10 years uh, after 9-11. Uh, and, and in thinking through a strategy for that, we decided early on that the way you do that is rebuild a foundation. And we focused on business, education, and healthcare as the three focuses. Understanding that every student that comes here is a brick in the foundation. Every American that's over there teaching English is a brick in the foundation. Every relationship between a businessman and a businesswoman is a brick in the relationship. And if you focus on that foundation, then 30 years from now, you, you see a different relation. Uh, and, and, and education was going to be a centerpiece of that. In fact, after my uh, uh, confirm, we rushed to get over there so I could be with uh, uh, King Abdullah in the opening of Cass University in, in September 2009. But in my mind, the focus on education was going to be the development of the Saudi education system uh, and trying to influence K through 12, which was a bit of a challenge and still is. And, and then what they were doing, higher education. Uh, <clears throat> early on, every time I would go out, every conversation ended up being about visas. So even though we put all this brain power toward a strategy, uh, you couldn't get more people over because you couldn't get visas. Uh, and, and the State Department was, was supportive of the problem, but they didn't have any answers. Uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, it was about a 115-day wait to get a visa appointment. And I say 115 because the books only go out to 90 days. So in the middle of a month, the next month's books would open. They would fill in about four hours. So, you know, you, you know three to four months just to get a visa appointment. And there's no way to condense that. Uh, so we, we were working some things around the margins, but nonetheless, uh, uh, there was, visas seemed to be a finite number. And that was at about 64,000. Uh, 
unless we wanted to increase capacity and, and there was no appetite for supporting that. And then in December of 2009, I want to say it was Jim Jones who was over for a visit and we're in to see King Abdullah. And a good meeting and at the end of the conversation we're walking out and King Abdullah reaches over and puts his hand on my arm. And he says, I'd like you to do me a favor. Uh, see what you can do to help Saudi students be successful. That's all he said. Uh, and so I go back uh, uh, to the embassy, go down to consular affairs, and I said, okay, guys, this, this is what King Abdullah said. What I want us to do is get the word out that no student, no student will miss a day of class because they could not get a visa appointment. In other words, students go to the front of the line, except for urgent medical care, they go to the front of the line. Students are notorious, present company accepted, of course for doing things at the last minute, but uh, uh, if, if a student comes in the week before they're supposed to travel, we will process his visa. I can't control how long it takes that to get processed, but I, we can get them an appointment. Uh, so a couple of things happened with that. One is the, 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 the State Department bureaucracy kind of pushed back because they didn't want to set a precedent of, of, of prioritizing. Uh, and as a political appointee, you're not supposed to meddle with you know, rules that have been established for hundreds of years. Uh, uh, one newspaper quoted me as saying that uh, uh, any student will get a visa. Yeah. Another, another newspaper quoted me as saying you don't need a visa if you're a student, okay? So I learned the value of selective translation, uh, but none of that's true, but that's what we started. But then we really started the process of getting to the bottom of how do you solve uh, uh, the visa challenge. And we approached it in the same way that I would uh, in the days where I was running an aircraft factory, which is focused on lean. Uh, we would call it lean manufacturing, but uh, 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 leaning out processes. So I asked some kind of basic questions like, uh, what is the no-show rate? And it was 30%. So imagine if you had a no zero no-show rate, how many more you would get in. And uh, I also then ask, how many second, more than one visits? In other words, somebody has to come back. In other words, it's on the order of 70 to 80%. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a wonderful group of, of leaders down there, and a very talented group. A uh, third of them, Americans, two-thirds uh, 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 were uh, uh, Foreign Service Nationals. Uh, and, and the first conversation was, how do you see your job? And they said, well, we're the first line of defense against terrorism. That's okay. I'll accept that. And how many terrorists have you caught in 10 years? Well, none. Well, maybe we're doing the wrong job. I don't dismiss the importance of And this was driven into the State Department because of the congressional mandate that a foreign service officer could be held accountable if they let somebody in, okay? So just really constipated the entire system. And I said, well, it's not about that, but maybe our job ought to be that you are the first contact that a Saudi will have with an American. You're their first experience with America. So I asked you, do you want that to be a positive one 
going to be the negative one. And they all agreed. So we, at that point, then uh, took the Arab-speaking third country nationals, pulled them out front, set up a room, so they would be the first people to meet people as they came in with the goal of getting the paperwork together. So the idea is if you walk in, you got all your paperwork together, then it'll work. And within about six months, we reduced the uh, wait time for a visa appointment down in the 23, 24 days from over 100 days. Great, great effort. And then guess what? The attitude was changing. And now we had more students coming saying, I, I want to go to America. By the way, in the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, you're not issued a country. You take the scholarship and go to whatever country you want to if you're accepted to a university in that country. There was a limit to the number of Saudis that wanted to come to America because America was not seen as a warm place to come. We had walls up. Uh, so while arguably there are a lot of Americans that don't understand Saudi Arabia, there are an awful lot of Saudis that did not understand us and they didn't feel welcome coming here. This helped to change that attitude. And then we got really lucky because the State Department moved to an online system which we thought was going to kill us uh, because there was only about a 40% penetration rate of, of, of computer use in, in, in Saudi Arabia. And uh, so, but anyway, we got an online system up and running. So I asked, how's it going? It's going fine. About two weeks go by. How's it going? It's going fine. So I, I go home over the weekend and pretend I'm a Saudi. I log on as uh, uh, Jamal Al-Smith to get a visa to go to American University, okay? And I spent about six hours. Uh, what a, and, and there were seven different pages that you had to step through. And they had put every possible word in every regulation impacting the visa and as I would read through it, and my English is pretty good, uh, uh, Arabic not so, but I can generally read. But before I could get through reading all of the words on the page, the page would time out. Okay, <laughs> so I'd have to come back in, call it, and, and, uh, but anyway, it took me about six hours to get through. And then when I got through the seventh pages and hit enter, the page went blank, and. So I go to staff meeting, and I make everybody suffer through this, okay? <laughs> uh, so we cleaned up the, the, the web page. And every embassy's got one. There's a little shop uh, down from the embassy, the Photoshop. The guy takes pictures for And this is a great guy, entrepreneur. So I go down to see him. And uh, I say, I got a new business for you. He says, What's well, we've got this new online system, okay? What if we teach you how to use it? and you start a business and just put up a big sign, we will do it for you and charge whatever it is that you think is necessary. And we had this guy that was down there and the Saudis would come in. Instead of having to spend six hours like that, he would just go through it and they'd show up at the Photoshop, get the picture, do the online stuff, get an appointment, and then come back through him. Within 18 months, we had reduced the... the uh, well, wait time for an appointment to single digits, where it stands today. We have reduced the time it takes the process in the, uh, the visa section from about four and a half hours to 45 minutes. 
And throughout Saudi Arabia, they saw, you care about us. That was the message that they were giving back. And guess what? We started seeing a plus up by 2010 of the number of students allowed to come to America. And every year, that increased. Uh, so, so staff, we want to save some time for questions. So oh, how about one more minute on this? Um, it's, it, it's created in Saudi Arabia, and not just the, the scholarship program, but Saudi Arabia has gone from eight to 32 universities in 15 years. Half the students back here are in graduate programs, many of them earmarked to come back and fill professor positions in those universities. So Saudi Arabia has made a huge investment, about 26% of their national budget on education. A lot of the things impact are obvious. You've heard them already. I'm going to give you three very quick anecdotes about how it impacts on things that you did not read in the newspaper. Uh, and the first one was uh, Princess Nora University uh, opened in 2009. They have about 40,000 uh, young women. This is a generation of women that would not have been going to college a generation ago. And as you know, there's a bridge year uh, between high school and, and college. 11,000 in the bridge year. And in the uh, uh, summer of 2013, they revolted because the administration declared we're taking up your iPhones and Blackberries. Okay? So these young women said, I don't think so. Well, they still have their iPhones and Blackberries. Uh, now, again, you didn't read about that in the Riyadh newspapers. Uh, also in 2013, there was a major protest at Hankhalid University, women's school down in Najran. Or, uh, uh, north of Najran. Uh, and, and what had happened was the, the women in the university were complaining because they didn't come clean the bathrooms up. The rector went and locked herself in the room because I don't have to listen to students. Oh, student body protest. Oh, by the way, University of Kasim, the most conservative part of the country, protests in support of the students just asking for something basic. Okay? Those kinds of things are happening in the kingdom. I don't get a lot of press attention. I think, uh, like Rajika said, it's going to have a huge impact on the country over the next decades. Look forward to your questions. Thank you. I'd like to thank each of you for very interesting different uh, aspects of the light you've shown on the, uh, the particular case study, the broader and the particular. Um, I, if, if I might, let me pose one question to Samar, which teases out something that Rajika alluded to, government's motivations for uh, doing this and purposes in, in promoting the cultural exchange. With specific respect to the Saudi program, I've heard it charged that, yes, we may have great numbers of Saudis here, but there's a very tight control. They're all here to study math, science, engineering, business, nothing that's uh, political science, no sociology, no as some are, you kept emphasizing ideas, the intent, the result of bringing back ideas, contact, what you refer to as cultural transformation. Um, uh, it, it was striking. You had that experience, and yet there are those who perceive, even if they know about this program, that there's a deliberate attempt to shelter the students, protect them, screen them off from the broader American experience, at least in this country. I don't know how it is in the other countries where they go. Could you speak more to your experience uh, 
perhaps you came from a family background that was more outward looking. I don't know. Your experience and that of your peers here, were you in fact uh, steered in certain directions, controlled? Did you, was there someone watching over you and your choices of what to study, who you associated with, uh, what you did in your free time, et cetera? How, how, did, how did it work? How was the experience? What is it that enabled you to bring back ideas and keep working with ideas, not just the specific skills? Sure. Um, well, definitely there wasn't anyone looking about what I'm doing or what I'm not doing. There were, um, speaking about what's from the cultural attache side, which is um, my academic advisor, you had every student has an academic advisor. And you have to send the academic advisor every semester your classes and your transcripts and everything. You're allowed to take any class you'd like. I took, I took a variety of classes. I took a lot of political science classes. A lot of, I took a lot of religion classes. I took ballet classes. I took um, art classes. So you, you are not limited in terms of your class choice, definitely. Um, in terms of majors as well, you are not limited. I, before coming to the States, not since 2010, a lot of people told me that you're not, oh, they're not going to accept studying international relations because they have a list of majors. And they do have a list of specific majors, but they're not limiting students to that. I have, I know students who studied film production. I, I know students who studied political science. I know students who studied photography. I know students who studied art, psychology, sociology, uh, anthropology. Um, so I wouldn't say they are limited. I, the case now at the current system, it is a little bit different, but since um, last year um, and before that, there were no limits on uh, what you'd like to study on, and even on your activities. Um, I was part of a lot of association, Saudi students associations, some clubs, and I was never prohibited from being part of any. I interned at a few organizations that was also not prohibited from uh, participating in any. So I, I wouldn't say there's a lot of control. Of course, you have to send your advisor what you're going to take and what you're not going to take. And they do have the right to like tell you, well, this is not part of your major or this is not going to work towards your credit. But basically, they just make sure that you finish on time and you do your class as well. But other than that, there is no um, limit. As long as you're doing well in your school, you have the option to explore other areas. Very good. Thank you very much. Let me um, yeah. open the, the panel is, is here and we're available to respond to any comments, questions uh, from anyone in the room at least. If there are none, I've got a long list of them, but let me not hog the available uh, 10 or 15 minutes we've got. Or, Miss, I, I can't read your name. Would you say your name, please? Oh, Kate. Hello, how are you? I don't have my glasses. It's great to see you here. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you. Thank you for this very interesting panel. As um, a reporter who covered Saudi Arabia from 2000 to 2008 and was very aware of the poor level of education, I was very excited by this scholarship program. And I'm always very excited to see all the Saudis that stand outside of that uh, language center on Connecticut Avenue below DuPont. <laughs> they take their cigarette breaks there. And it's just, it's, it's wonderful to see them all in their skinny jeans. And you know, I know they're going to go back and contribute to uh, the future of Saudi, which is where my question is going. It's about the issue of how this dovetails with the Saudiization program, which wasn't going very well. And maybe Anne and James and Summer, you can talk a little bit about this. Are Saudi, these Saudi students going back and are they filling the private sector jobs that have previously been held by you know, Brits and um, Indians and Americans? Or are they still hoping to go into the public sector, which was traditionally where Saudis wanted to work? How is this program uh, helping the Saudiization program and how is it going in general? 
one bit of that. Every time we write a case, we end it with big questions. That's the question we ended the case with. Uh, interestingly, the government has been thinking long and hard about this, and we have not uh, adapted the case yet, but there were some major new announcements the last few weeks about a direct link between the scholarship and employment, and it's a, new, it's a strenuous link, and it may cause some issues, but they may have gone from one end of not embedding that to maybe cementing it. Um, so I, I think that's the question everybody would like to see answered. I have no doubt about it if, if we cast a glance 10 years from now. Uh, it's just the next few years that are harder to understand. The only conversation in Saudi Arabia, if you're not talking about oil or foreign policy, is jobs. That is the conversation. And one form or another of that, more jobs in general. Uh, the relevance of Saudi education or you know, terrific people like Summer to the growth industries. That is the only conversation. So I think it's hard to answer that because there are so many factors at play. But I would commend the government for making sure that that is a centerpiece topic. And they've reorganized a lot of the upper echelons of government to zero in on that. Uh, it's going to be a hard one mountain to climb. And it's certainly hard in the United States to climb that mountain. And we're naturally good at creating jobs. So. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a lot. I think the Minister of Ed, uh, Labor, uh, also a rock, uh, he just moved, but he was the rock star Minister of Labor, really put this issue of Saudiization in a somewhat controversial way on the table. But he said if we don't force ourselves to ask the hard questions and move in very hard directions, we'll never get there. So it's all uh, kind of in the bakery being baked, is, is my perspective on that. But oh, actually, one last thing I would say, the, the sort of really surprising element to me is in forming this think tank, we couldn't pilfer think tank people from other think tanks because there weren't any. So we had to go out and we interviewed 700 people uh, for our team of 15. And I've had the privilege of, I was a fellow at Harvard for a number of years and built a lot of things and a lot of teams. I have never, ever met a team of people I mean, let's say half the 700 were a mistake that we got, they got an interview. But um, I have never met a group of people who bring so much to the table. Their ability to be very westernized, very easternized, their ability to translate culture ideas. Americans don't have this. They are tuned to what's coming next much more than we are. And I simply felt overwhelmed by the talent um, the only challenge is it's all very young talent, so they don't have a lot of experience, but the talent base was extraordinary. This team at our little itty-bitty center, in my estimation, is the best team I've ever had the privilege of building, and I've worked with Boston Consulting Group and Harvard and done a number of things. Uh, their ability to look inward and outward is, is extraordinary. The thinking ability, the poise of somebody like Summer, and she's just one of the rest. So I look 10 years out and I see the light. I, I think there'll be a lot, a lot of bumps over the next two to three years. I don't think the NICATAT program was one that was advertised or understood. Minister of Labor, one of the most forward-thinking guys in the country. And most people assume it is about replacing a third country national with a Saudi. And that was never the intent 
of the minister's program. He was sending a message to business and industry, you've got to lean out your business. So you've got X over here, this blue collar, Y over here, this management. I want you to modernize, mechanize, reduce the number of people that are doing that. And this is where Lean and Six Sigma and business principles come in, so that the ratio between management and blue collar, mostly third country nationals, change. If you just look at it as, as replacing one for one, that's like our strategy of improving the economy is sending all the Mexicans home from California so there's jobs for Americans to pick strawberries. It just doesn't make sense. Now, he never really explained it, uh, and, and, and that's the challenge. But the problem is you have an economy that's built on the backs of cheap third country national labor. If you don't change that economy by leaning it and, and modernizing it, you, you can't change the equation. That's what the Saudiization program is after. Other comments or questions here? Ambassador Cutler? All of this. Uh supposed to be loyal alumni, and uh, we hear from our colleges and universities uh, mostly asking for money, but mm -hmm. that's all right. I just wanted to ask, uh, those who have gone to American universities, uh, is, there, is there an effort being made to keep in touch over the years, now this program is, is moving on, uh, with your, your, your universities and colleges, uh, either together in Saudi Arabia or directly with, with the college. For example, our speaker here went to American University. Uh, uh, are you staying in touch and, and, uh, with other American University students or directly with the university? Um, I'm staying in touch with both, actually. Um, I don't know if, I wouldn't say that I'm, every student does the same, but um, basically when I graduated, I went to the international office and I told them that I want my name to be there for like prospective Saudi students if they're interested in the university so they can connect me with. And um, basically there are a lot of um, college fairs that are happen that happen in Saudi Arabia. So the ones that I can attend in Riyadh or um, even in the Eastern province, I usually go there. A lot of um, college fairs that happen within private schools. So I go and represent American University. Basically, I've done it twice, and they, basically, American University sends me like brochures and all of that, and I present them during the fair. So I have a booth, and I basically speak as um, as part of American University. And um, so I'm still in touch with the university, with specifically the International Students Office. Um, but I'm also in touch with um, my professors there, as well as my friends who are American University. But Again, I wouldn't say that's everyone's case. A lot of people come back and just don't look back at their experience or a lot still do connect. So I wouldn't say they're the common theme, but that's my experience. Thank you, Summer. I think Richard LeBaron, Ambassador LeBaron, then Mr. Kessenbach. I just want to reinforce the point that Ambassador Cutler was making and Rajika made as well, that our universities seem to be very eager to take Saudi money and very bad at building networks with Saudi alumni. Um, and from a foreign policy point of view, this is a lost asset. Uh, if we don't keep up with these people, listen to them, engage them over time, uh, it's just a wasted asset. It's true in our exchange programs sponsored by the U.S. government. It's true in our private, in the private scholarship programs. It's true for the 
thousands and thousands of Chinese students who come here paying their own tuition, uh, but we have no structure within the government or among universities that I know of to actually consciously build networks with alumni, and I fear that we will look back in 10 years and say, what were we thinking when we didn't build these structures? Mr. Fayme is a Fulbright's even worse than that, as the <laughs> Congress every year uh, looks to cut back, and, and they see things like educational cultural exchange as soft stuff. How can we justify this? Let the private sector do it. And you, you didn't do the compare and contrast figures, Stephanie, but the Fulbright program, maybe Rajika, you probably have this in mm -hmm. some of the IIE's work. Mm -hmm. The Fulbright program is trivial compared to this one alone. Uh, so we're, we seem to be disinvesting as a polity, as a government and a state. I think individual universities work hard to keep alumni together, but maybe they don't focus specifically on the foreign ones. Mm -hmm. I know the Fulbright program tries to mm -hmm. get an alumni network going because mm -hmm. they solicit me and I, and I respond. If I may just respond for a second before you go sure. to the next question. I think one of the complicating factors with scholarship programs such as the Saudi one or any of the others um, is who gets to claim that person as an alumni? So I think yeah. there hasn't been clarity amongst US institutions as the host institution versus the program or the, or mm -hmm. the government funding the program on who does that student belong to? And the answer, of course, is both, and that there needs to be some clear articulation around that. But I suspect that that's one of the reasons why students like this just, just disappear in terms of, uh, in, in terms of uh, U.S. university alumni outreach strategies. The, and the other answer is, it's, to that question is, he or she belongs to whoever she or he feels mm -hmm. he belongs to. Mm -hmm. While I was in, in Turkey recently, uh, there was a sui generis network of uh, Turkish students or international students regi uh, resident in Turkey, but principally Turks, who got themselves together, their own website and everything, uh, called Alumni Turk, and it was most, almost all uh, those American uh, educated in the United States and a few mm -hmm. in Europe. So there's, uh, there's an um, enthusiasm to do that, and social media is enabling some of it. I'm conscious that Mr. Kessenbaum is there, and we're, we're running close to the end, but please go ahead. Well, thank you. That leads to the, probably the best last question of all anyway. <laughs> uh, Charlie Kessenbaum, uh, I'm the vice president of a relatively new trade association called the Middle East North Africa Consultants Association. And we have an, a program called the Women's Entrepreneur Initiative focused on women in the Middle East region. And our focus is the last mile. You have hundreds of thousands of graduates coming out. Um, and how do they actually train them for jobs and actually link them up with people who are, want to do business with them? And so I think that the biggest weakness of the whole program is what happens after they graduate. And we're trying to address that. And we'd like some help and like to make you aware that there are groups like us um, incubators that we could set up, uh, linking our members with students who want to participate and open up a, a law firm, an accounting firm, a, a, a real estate investment group. We'd like to team up with your, your graduates and provide a structured, organized, last mile program. So we'd like you to be aware that, that the biggest weakness you have right now, as you very well know, is what do you do with all these students? and employ them all, and we'd like to help and participate, but we don't know how to do that. Thank you. One of the areas, we, we have um, you know, our fast facts and research, but we also have some very deep dive research. One of the topics is called From Education to Employment. 
I think one way to also think about it, I don't per se think, frankly, Saudi Arabia has an education deficit. Yes, it had to build eight to 32 universities in rapid fours, 33,000 public schools, yes. It, and what it has accomplished in the last 30 years is really absolutely awesome. It has an experience deficit. Right? Who wants to hire, in any country, a college graduate who's never done anything? Uh, we have, at least in Australia, the United States, and so forth, this sort of natural tendency of kick the kid out of the door at the age of 12 and make them do something. Uh, I think, really, if you even sort of take kind of the education work out and put it experience in, you get a much better reflection of where the shortcoming is. Uh, we can't fix the American education system. Okay? This is a problem everywhere. But I think where Saudi Arabia can really do a massive uptick, and they're really trying, and this is sort of the next phase of King Abdullah's scholarship, yeah. they really are intent on this, is to remedy what I would call the experience deficit. And that's where I think, again, the United States can play very, very valuably in the experience arena. And I know you and your wife spent a lot of time uh, advocating across Saudi Arabia that it's got to be education and experience. We need to extend the visa so that it can do work programs. And of course, Summer is an example of that. She's done at least two in the United States. And we don't, you know, every month or so, there's a meeting where Summer says, but you know, when we were at this think tank or that thing, think tank, that's how we did it. Yeah. So they don't have the reference to say, that's how we did it. And I think that's the issue ultimately, in that dynamic. Um, but I must say, the government has their eye on that in a very, very big way. Thank you, Anne. Um, I've noticed Steve Grant here, and maybe I can close this out by putting this again back in the larger context of what we do at the Atlantic Council. We have a major project underway, some of you know, um, in this uh, very room, we've had former Secretary of State Albright, former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley, co-chairing uh, something that the Atlantic Council is doing with many sister institutions around town and with partners in the region and in Europe. And that is a Middle East Strategy Task Force, bringing together people across the geography, across our cultures and languages and religions uh, and various interests to try to understand what we collectively can do together to help that region find its way forward despite civil war conflict, uh, the collapse of states, other states under attack. And while the news media and many think tanks tend to focus on Daesh, ISIS, uh, the, the horrible atrocities that go on, the remarkable ability of, of criminal elements to solicit and recruit people through the internet in numbers that are, are frightening, this kind of healthy process is hiding in plain sight. Where uh, a government known for its conservatism here is, as Anne Habibi just pointed out, acting with speed in certain cases uh, and where it sees a national interest to do so. So it's really uh, quite a remarkable thing and, and we will continue at the Atlantic Council working with partner institutions in Saudi Arabia and in the region with individuals who have vision like uh, those who are running, uh, who have established your center um, Anne and had the, the wisdom to hire you into it to, to do what you're doing, uh, to work with uh, your institution, Rajika, and others to promote educational and cultural exchange as part of our vital national interests that we share with others. Not something soft and uh, nice to do, but something vitally important to do. 
So I thank you all for coming. Thank you for those in uh, Saudi Arabia who have stayed up late and continued to watch us on the last night of the Eid. Again, Eid Mubarak, relatedly to you all. And, uh, and thanks to all the panelists for joining us today as well.